0: Some of the literature we're seeing come out w- as it relates to people being made DNR is that it may be that some people who are being made DNR are also not getting optimal care. Dr. Jonathan Baktari, You can see it. I mean, it's crystal clear. I think it's gonna really revolutionize things. Which is a big game changer. All information discussed or provided by Jonathan Bactari, MD, Dr. Bactari, and or his affiliates and guests are for educational purposes only. The information discussed and provided is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical concern or condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of any information discussed or provided by Dr. Bactari or his affiliates and guests. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call 911 immediately. Hi, welcome to Bhaktari MD. Today we're going to be talking about end of life. End of life care, end of life discussions you need to have with your physician, your family, possibly at some point. It's a very sensitive topic and there's a lot to cover, a lot to unpack. First of all, I want to talk about, you know, the different facets of end of life care in a medical situation. As we all know, many people have living wills which instruct their loved ones and their doctors and their medical team, what to do in the event that they're in a situation where there may be no hope, um, and how to proceed and what their wishes were would be if they couldn't speak for themselves. I want to compartmentalize that into three different categories. One is when people fill out a living will, they say, you know what, if there's no hope, I don't want you know, this, this, this. And then also there's this, other category where if there's no hope they may not even want certain care meaning just comfort care and lastly if they're in a situation where they're on life support and there's no hope that they would want care withdrawn so those three those are three separate things meaning the first thing is think of it as going into the hospital i don't want this level of heroic the second level is i'm in the hospital but things are not going well, I only want comfort care, okay? And then the last thing is, I'm on life support and things aren't going well, and I want my family or doctors to withdraw care. Those three things are fundamentally different and yet the same. So let's talk about that. But before I do, I want to go over what type of heroics can happen in a hospital, so we can define going into the hospital what someone may or may not want being in the hospital what may what someone may or may not want and being on life support and what it involves to take some of that stuff away so let's talk about what we traditionally call in the in the medical world DNR do not resuscitate status that is juxtaposed to what medical people call full code which means we're going to do everything So what does DNR mean and what does full code mean? Let's start with DNR. DNR stands for do not resuscitate. And that's actually a status someone's given in the hospital. It literally can be on your chart, on your file, in the computer, which says that you've chosen not to be resuscitated. But what does that really mean? Well, DNR can mean multiple forms of resuscitation. But let's start with the basic one, which we're all familiar with, which is CPR, so, if someone chooses to <clears throat> not be resuscitated, they can specify that they actually do not want CPR. CPR, as we know, are chest compressions where literally someone will go on your chest when your heart stops and and press on your chest to keep blood ideally flowing until the, you can be until your heartbeat can come back. The next thing that you can have is what's called ACLS protocol, where we give you medication to deal with different types of heart rhythm. And that's also part of resuscitation. The last thing is shock, where we literally take paddles and we shock your heart if your heart were to stop or go into an irregular rhythm. Those are some forms of resuscitation, which include CPR, ACLS, which is giving you medications through the veins, and then shocking your heart. But in addition to that, to be resuscitated sometimes requires a... Intubation, which is a big straw is put through your mouth into your windpipe where we can mechanically breathe for you if your heart and lung have stopped. So that's also part of resuscitation. And finally, we can start more medicines through the vein to support your blood pressure if your blood pressure has collapsed. So when someone says, I want to be DNR, I do not want to be resuscitated, it can be a combination of all of those things or specific ones. In other words, when a physician or somebody in the healthcare team asks you what your wishes are, they may simply talk about heroics, but at some point when you get down to the nitty gritty, the question is, do you want CPR? Do you want ACLS, which is medications to fix, let's say, heart rhythms? Do you want your heart shocked? Do you want a intubation which is a tube going down your windpipe to then connect you to a breathing machine to breathe for you and do you want medicines through the vein to support your blood pressure if your blood pressure is low. On some level you can choose any combination of that or broadly speaking you could choose not to have any of that done. So that is one choice people can make when entering a hospital setting especially if they're sick. Traditionally a lot of this stuff we don't we try not to do if we think doing all this stuff is not going to change the eventual outcome. If we think it's not going to change the outcome, then a lot of this may just be futile care. And so if that discussion is being had, it may be because there's no point in necessarily doing all this stuff if there's really no meaningful chance of recovery or leaving the hospital. So that's one thing. Once that decision is made, the other decision is, let's say someone has progressive cancer, they're in the hospital, and it's very unlikely that they're going to leave the hospital. At that point, a person can say, I just also want comfort care, meaning I don't want to be treated. Again, only treated to address comfort. So I think there's a balance between saying, I do not want to be resuscitated, but I want care, to I don't want to be resuscitated, and I only want Comfort care. And then the last part is what happens if you find yourself on life support, and then however you get there, you realize that there's no hope of getting off life support or having meaningful recovery, and you want to withdraw life support. So those are the three areas that I think people need to understand. When you're coming into the hospital, what level of heroics do you want? And even if you don't want those heroics, do you want care, meaning all care, or do you want just comfort care? And lastly, if you're on life support and things change and the prognosis is poor, do you want life support withdrawn? So the next thing I really want to talk about is in, in my own experience, I think people often are confused and, and medical people are often confused between someone who chooses not to have any heroics done, quote unquote, if their heart or lung stops, versus getting care. So when you come into the hospital and some, someone says to you, do you want these heroics? Do you want CPR? Do you want ACLS? Do you want shock? You may not want that in case your heart or lung stops, but that doesn't mean you don't want good care and good aggressive care necessarily some of the literature we're seeing come out as it relates to people being made dnr is that it may be that some people who are being made dnr are also not getting optimal care not always some sometimes yes sometimes no a lot of that has to do with several factors one is Often, DNR is presented to families and to patients when the prognosis looks grim, but that prognosis assumes that the person making the prognosis is a good prog- prognosticator. And what we see from all the studies that you've see, you'll you see that I've linked in, in the bottom here is that not all doctors and healthcare providers are good prognosticators of of anyone's particular situation necessarily. So different hospitals w- will apply DNR status at a different rate than other hospitals. In other words, if you go into a hospital with a major stroke, you, depending on what hospital you go to, you may be talked into DNR at a higher or lower rate than another hospital. And that DNR status will, can be a predictor of whether you live and die. In other words, if you go into a hospital and within the first 24 hours after a stroke, they say, your doctor comes and says, well, this is a massive stroke. We shouldn't do any heroics. Uh, you agree with that. And if you agree with that, that is a marker of you not leaving the hospital at a higher rate than someone who says, no, go ahead and do everything for me. So... For the DNR to be applied equitably and across the board, there there is no set of criteria that every hospital and every doctor follows. It's a judgment called every time. And yes, while the majority are probably done within the same criteria, depending on what hospital or which part of the country you're in, there's a different rate of DNR status for the same diagnoses. And not only that, but there's a different rate of outcome. For people who are made DNR, often, based on some of these studies, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you're made DNR, you're more likely not to leave the hospital. Now, why that's the case? Some of these articles argue that it's because the people who are made DNR actually have worse disease or more likely not to make it. But other articles suggest that it may be that people who are made DNR are offered less care after they're made dnr in other words dnr is interpreted not only as do not resuscitate but the staff and 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 people involved in the care interpret dnr at some level potentially as do not treat so people who get dnr status sometimes are not offered the same rate of surgeries procedures laboratory testing there's some studies that suggest that staff Don't the staff doesn't walk into the room as often as as before once you're made DNR status. That is, not as many labs are ordered once you're made DNR status. Again, DNR status does not mean do not treat. It just means do not resuscitate. But I think what all of these studies put together suggests that on some level, often a DNR status is interpreted as do not treat. Consultants may not come and see the patient as often. They may not offer the same amount of tests because their interpretation may be that if this person does not want to be resuscitated, maybe they also don't want aggressive care. Now, sometimes that is true. Sometimes when people are do not resuscitated, they also don't want aggressive care. Or sometimes they don't want any care at all. They just want comfort care. But that's not determined by the DNR status. That's a secondary choice, meaning I don't want to be resuscitated if my heart or lung stops. But I want to continue to get care. I want to be offered surgeries. I want to be offered procedures. I want to be offered medication. I want all the consultants to come see me as frequently as before. It's just I'm simply saying that if my heart or lung stops, I don't want to be resuscitated so when when someone asks when someone asks a patient or a family if they want to be resuscitated, they're and they're saying the prognosis is poor. one, you have to determine the credibility or let's say the educational level of that person telling you that. Obviously, if you have a neurological issue and a neurologist is speaking to you, that's obviously better than if someone like a Medical student or a resident or intern was saying that. Potentially, potentially not. But the point is, you have to factor that in. So, multiple things have to happen. One, if you're going to be made DNR, you have to make sure you communicate that you don't want to be resuscitated. But then you also have to communicate what level of care you would like above and beyond your DNR status. And then we have to make sure that message gets sent clearly that you do want aggressive care or you don't want aggressive care despite that DNR status. And a lot of that's going to be determined by the prognosis that you're given and who's giving you that prognosis. We know from all these studies that the prognosis from institution to institution varies. So in other words, if we have people with strokes, intracerebral hemorrhages going to one hospital and versus another hospital, and one hospital assigns DNR status at a higher rate than the other one, given the same severity of illness, then that suggests that certain institutions, certain doctors use DNR at a higher rate than other institutions. And potentially that higher rate of DNR usage may potentially lead to less care for those people. And so it's a really balancing act. Obviously, DNR is needed. Obviously, there are many cases where care is futile, the prognosis is poor. We do not want to pound on someone's chest or shock someone if there's no hope for meaningful recovery. The flip side of it is, when there is a chance for meaningful recovery, we don't want DNR to be translated at some level to do not treat and impact the actual likelihood of that person surviving the hospital stay. And again, I think it's this issue of, are, are we sometimes translating do not resuscitate to do not treat? And if we are, then we have to be really careful when we make someone DNR, we have to be careful that our prognosis is accurate. And often, very early in the hospital admission, before we have a handle on the real likelihood that things may not turn out well, um, if we make someone DNR, that may be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it becomes very, very important not to rush into a DNR status until we feel comfortable that we have all the facts, we have a handle on the prognosis, and there's a consensus on the prognosis among people in the medical staff who are in the best position to make that prognosis. The other struggle really is that a lot of family members also struggle the other way. There are many cases where someone should be DNR because there's obviously no hope, but family members may f- feel guilty by by agreeing to have the patient be DNR that they you know somehow contributed to the eventual outcome and in reality you know that there really is a point where we're not really extending life when we do resuscitation we're extending suffering and so that's the balancing act and i think that's why it's very important that you have confidence in the medical team that you're you're with and you understand the true prognosis and and when resuscitation and further care is futile versus when it isn't and i think you know again it really goes back to having uh a lot of communication with you know your healthcare team especially the ones that are trained in the area that you or your loved one is dealing with So if it's a cancer, obviously an oncologist, if it's a neurological problem, a neurologist or neurosurgeon, it's very, very important that you at least get that input. And sometimes, you know, within the first 24 hours, you know, things are very grim. Yes, you may have to make a decision, but often you may have more time, you know, to really see which way things are going, one or two days, maybe. But again, those are conversations you need to have with your medical team uh, and 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 really try to get input from as many specialists that relate to what your family uh, or loved one is going through all right so to summarize it's very 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 important that you have to understand that DNR status is ver- is appropriate when there is no s- Chance for meaningful recovery, or however you got there, you do not want your you do not want to be resuscitated if your heart or lungs stop. But separate from that, you have to make a decision, even if you don't want resuscitation, that you do want care or don't want care, appropriate care. And I think it's very important to communicate that to the medical staff that your decision to be DNR or your loved one to be DNR in no way impacts your decision for wanting care or not wanting care. So th- I and I think when those two things get confused is as these studies below will show you that's where there is confusion and that's where things may not, not be ideal. And I think we need to separate that and understand that we have to Tell her, tell the medical staff, we don't want to be resuscitated or we do want to be resuscitated and we want care and we don't want care and the two are not interchangeable. So there's one other thing I want to talk about and that is withdrawing support. Now this, I can tell you, I have had this conversation with thousands of families over my career and the one common theme is when there's a patient who is not doing well and is... Going to pass away more than likely anyway. When we have the conversation with the family about withdrawing life support in those situations, that becomes a very difficult conversation. I think for most of us, you know, one, we hope to never be in that situation. But if we are unfortunate enough to be in that situation where a healthcare professional is talking to you about withdrawing life support, that is something that goes against every bone in our body to take life support away from someone you love. But you really have to compartmentalize the situation and say, not what you want for your loved one, because we always want everything to be done for our loved one. But I think it's very important to take yourself out of the equation, even though you're being asked to make the decision to say, What would my loved one, what would my mother, father, whoever, grandfather, what would they say if they could speak for themselves? And often when I tell families not to give me their decision, but tell me what their loved one would say if they could speak, if they could be right here and, and see what's going on, what they would say. And I think once people can make that transition in saying, I'm not telling you what I want, I'm telling you what he or she would want if he could, he or she could see this, that absolves a lot of families from making that decision and feeling like it was their decision, which is, I think, the right thing. Because at the end of the day, your family is there to speak for you. No matter what their own personal Biases or choices might be in that situation, their only role is to speak for you because you cannot speak. And assuming you've had conversations with them in the past and told them what you w- would want in these kind of situations, they're simply a conduit of what you, the patient, would want. And therefore, I think you don't have to bear all the guilt of. Quote unquote withdrawing life support. I think when people push back on withdrawing life support, even when they themselves know there's no hope, I believe from my many years of doing this, it's often because they don't want to live with the fact that they were the ones that quote unquote pulled the plug and live with the possibility did they make the right decision? Did they make the wrong decision? But once you let them know it's not their decision actually. In fact, they have nothing to do with it. They're simply a messenger who's going back in time, understanding what you wanted, and they're simply conveying it. That rem- removes them from any guilt associated with removing life support in a situation where there's no hope. If there's literally no hope, and that happens a lot, the family is there not to decide, yes, yes, I think there's no hope we we should withdraw life support. I think they're there to say there's no hope and this is what my loved one would want and do if there was no hope. And I think all of us, if you think of it like that, all of us want our family members to convey what we've told them and not necessarily what they want. And the good thing about doing it like that is we're now simply a conduit a conveying the message from the person who is going to have to live or die with the consequences you know, of, of our choice right there and then. So it's important to let them decide for themselves by us simply being the messenger of what they would have wanted. I think we've covered a lot, and some of these are very touchy subjects. I know even some medical per- Uh, personnel may have strong opinions one way or another, but if you have a strong opinion about anything I may have said, please, please, please read some of the articles I've linked below because a lot of them came as a big surprise to me. And I know we're always, uh, uh, us in the medical community are always fighting the fight to make sure we don't extend suffering and we do the right things for patients. But I think we have to stand back and analyze and say you know are there times where you know the decision to make someone DNR you know makes things go in a direction that we probably didn't want to happen and if you disagree that's fine if you agree that's fine but read the articles below and please leave a comment and tell me what you think am i misreading all of these articles is there is there another side to it i think these articles really tell us that I we need to have a discussion about this, that our standard way of looking at DNR is appropriate in many cases, but not all. And I think a fair reading of these articles, I think would get a reasonable person to, to agree that we need to have further conversation and, and figure out ways to maybe do things even better. Thank you for listening. You can check out my website, jonathanbaktarimd.com to sign up for my newsletter. And you can watch this full episode over on my YouTube channel, MD, where you can leave questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes. Also, please check out my website, jonathanbaktarimd.com where you can subscribe to my newsletter and get more information about healthcare. And as always, take care and be well.